Hey, Upper Feasters, hope you're having a great day so far. Today's episode, I talk with an advanced sommelier, Keegan Corcoran. He's a beverage director for Jeff Ruby Culinary. There's only around 600 advanced sommeliers in the whole world, so I'm super honored to talk to him. He had so much wine knowledge and expertise, but he was really super casual. Told me about a time he dropped an expensive bottle of champagne and sprayed an entire table. He gave us some tips on tasting wine, also some great regions that have affordable wine. He tells me about the most expensive wine he's ever had, and I asked him if expensive wines are objectively better or if it's part placebo effect. He gave me the perfect amount to pour to maximize the nose and taste of your wine. I asked him why boxed wine has such a negative connotation. Also asked him if he could drink six seltzers and identify the brands. His answer was a little disappointing. <laughs> I asked him about the pros and cons of having such a refined palate. Follow him at Snap Keegan. Also follow Jeff Ruby Culinary. Do you have any horror stories of maybe a server or a Sam opened a very expensive bottle of wine and, and maybe spilled it or maybe uh, dropped the bottle and broke it, like anything like that? You don't spend as much time on the floor, uh, you know, and, and, you know, literally experience, or I'm sorry, literally like interacting with, with tens of thousands of people over the course of your career without making some mistakes. And one of my most egregious mistakes, there was a couple that came in kind of a little bit late. I was the closer that night. Uh, I think it was like a Thursday or something like that. And they actually were from New York now that I think about it. And they were like two of maybe five people left in the building. Like it was a super late reservation. They had just flown in, you know, and they were very, very nice. They're like, oh, we're sorry for coming in late. I'm like, no, no big deal. Come on in. And they, they started off with a, a, a bottle of champagne and, and I went to the back and I, I got it and I come back in and I'm talking to them about the city and what brought them in and all that stuff, you know, just making, you know, niceties. I made the mistake of like the, the bottle was kind of uh, wet still, like because I had it in a nice bath and everything and I pulled it out and I, I grabbed the bottle inc- incorrectly and I was holding it just by the cage and I oh, no. I, I was on my last turn of, of the wire cage and the bottle was slippery and the pressure uh, shot straight down. And so like my, you know, my hands were right here. The bottle went straight down. Oh it no. Hit, it hit the floor right in front, right in between my feet flush. And this fountain of champagne oh, went no. up all over me, all over the table. I, and I was so embarrassed and, and they couldn't have been more like they were laughing. Uh, they couldn't have been, <laughs> thankfully they were really cool about it, but I was like, ah, uh, let me start this whole, uh, right. dining experience over, please. I'll be right back with another <laughs> bottle of wine. That's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. <laughs> wow. That's nuts. And it's my understanding there's four levels of sommelier. Is that correct? Uh, there's four primary levels. So there's uh, introductory, there's certified, uh, there's advanced, uh, which is what I am. And then there's master. Uh, which I sit for uh, the master theory exam on July 18th. So uh, when, once you reach that third level, you're considered a, mas- a master candidate. You get to be thrown through even more of a, a crazy gauntlet of questions uh, at the master level. Wow, that's incredible. And in the third level with the one that you are, very few people are that, isn't it? Like less than a thousand people are, are that high of a level? Yeah, it's about it's about 600. Oh my God. Yeah. That's incredible. That's crazy. So when you passed your test, when you passed your exam for this third one, how did you celebrate? Like, did you go get a fancy meal, a fancy wine? Like, what did you do uh, to celebrate? First thing I did was cry. <laughs> that makes uh, sense. No, it was my second attempt at it. Uh, it's something that I've been working on since uh, 2009, you know, when I first got my my intro uh, and then kind of uh, progressed along in the path and whatnot. And then, uh, but yeah, when they told me I was 
oh, waterworks, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, I believe it. <laughs> no, no shame in that at all. And, uh, and, and then I, uh, I, I called my dad and I called, uh, you know, all my friends and everything and let them knew. And, and then, yeah, went out, definitely went out like all the others that, that passed that exam. You know, we, we went out to a restaurant. I took it in Phoenix and uh, that's, that's where I passed. And then, you know, I, I can't even remember the, uh, the restaurants and bars that we went to that night because I was like, okay, time to, time to let loose a little bit. When you were practicing to learn all these wines, I, I know that you guys tend to like spit out the wine, but how did you not become like a raging alcoholic tasting all these wines all the time? <laughs> yeah, people's best bet is, is pretty common is to be part of a tasting group. So you have, you know, your colleagues, your peers who are also trying achieve, to achieve the same thing um, and trying to learn, you know, it's a good way. Everybody pretty much brings uh, numerous bottles um, that way everybody can taste a little bit of multiple wines rather than having to sit and try to get through just an entire bottle, you know, so, which actually ironically the best way also to, to really learn a wine is, you know, if you really want to know what Sauvignon Blanc is, sit and drink two bottles of it in one sitting. The next day you'll never forget what Sauvignon Blanc is the next time you, you know, encounter it or any other variety for that matter. But uh, yeah, you know, you just, you have to keep your wits about you. So the, the, the tasting and then spitting is very much a part of it. Otherwise, yeah, it's, uh, it's not going to be good for you. Of course. I don't expect you to name names or anything, but have you ever been at a restaurant and you ordered a wine, like maybe an expensive, say like a, a $15 glass of wine or something? Have you ever received like a different wine, like someone was trying to cut costs or maybe a cocktail where it was supposed to be Maker's Mark, but you could tell it was something less than? Uh, you know, there is one instance, like I, I can remember, and this was years ago where, you know, and it wasn't at a fancy place or anything like that. So I really didn't care too much, but it still stuck out in my mind, you know, because obviously honesty is a thing. Um, and I ordered a glass of wine and, and my table was kind of like in the bar lounge area. And so I was in view of the, of the bartender and I just happened to be glancing over and the wine that I ordered, you know, they poured and it was like the last little bit of that bottle. And then they reached for a different bottle uh -oh. and, then, and then topped <laughs> it off with a, a different thing. And Again, you know, it wasn't like a fancy place or anything. So I'm like, well, you know, that's that's kind of par for the course for this place. <laughs> um, that that restaurant's no longer, you know, in existence anymore. So yeah, I mean, but otherwise, no, not really. I'd say for the most part, you know, service professionals, industry professionals are 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 pretty honest people. Uh, that's from good. What I, yeah, yeah. My 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 experience. I've been in the industry for a long time, so I can definitely say that you know, industry professionals, industry people are 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 salt of the earth, in my opinion. Absolutely, and. I'm, I'm very curious about when a sommelier is at a restaurant, like at when they're at Jeff Ruby, how does service work exactly? Like, does the server have to request you? Does the table request you? Do you touch every single table? Like, how does that work? From the perspective of a som, you mean? Yeah. Well, you know, not, not really request you specifically. I think, you know, once you kind of garner enough uh, of a decent reputation, uh, you know, people can, you know, request you to stop by. And, and sometimes, you know, they... Uh, may not even know you either. They may just ask for the sommelier to, to come over and talk uh, about the wine, which, you know, maybe to the chagrin to a lot of our servers, because, you know, I, I try to uh, make sure one, all of our servers at our, at our restaurants are top notch. They're very, very uh, intensely trained uh, and specifically trained on wine by me and other spirits. So, you know, people's best bet if you're coming to our restaurant, uh, you know, trust the server because, you know, they, they really have to go through a ringer before they're able to wear that that server jacket. But even still, there's, you know, there's certain expertise and certain knowledge about the wines that I put on the, these wine lists that people might be wanting a little bit more of an in-depth explanation about it. And I'm always happy to nerd out with people 
you know, I'll go as deep as you want down the rabbit hole with a particular uh, wine. That's incredible. So like, if you have a table that you can tell they're kind of like nerding out and vibing out, we kind of like be a little extra with your descriptions. Like, you know, this is old world, like super specific soil, like all the kind of nerdy stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and you kind of have to, you know, just like any other aspect of hospitality, you have to, you know, gauge, uh, you know, you have to read the people, right? And just in terms of the type of wine service they they want, because I talk about talk about this a lot with our um, with our staff when we're talking about wine service, like a, a person's demeanor and everything, or, or the, the way that, you know, you interact with the guests will determine kind of the wine style that they want. There's certain people that come in and, you know, it might as well be like, you know, a Bud Light or whatever they're drinking, like, I don't care, just pour it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and there's other people that want that kind of stoic, you know, kind of, you know, rigid style, traditional style of, of wine service. And that's cool too. Uh, and then there's other people that depending upon their blood sugar, if they're, you know, kind of hangry to start the meal and then they get some bread in them and, and whatnot, they loosen up, loosen up over the course of the meal. That, you know, the style of service can change even over the course of a meal from start to finish. But it's, it's kind of funny to, to see that change, that, to see that kind of uh, stylistic uh, service, you know? Yeah, of course. I know that Jeff Ruby has super elite, like top tier service. Like it's like the best service I've ever had, honestly. So my question for you is if a customer asks for a taste, right, of a bottle and they say they don't like it, to me, that's not a valid excuse. Like to me, they can only say it's corked or it's gone bad. Like what is your opinion on that? Like if someone gets a taste of a bottle, like I know you want to wow them with hospitality, but you got to draw the line somewhere. Do you understand my question? Yeah, you know, I'd say, well, one, we would never, you know, begrudge anyone. If they truly didn't like something, I would never begrudge them to, you know, well, you're stuck with it. Sorry, you know, and especially like if it's a, like a, a pretty pricey bottle of wine, which we have plenty of uh, on our list. And we also have some, you know, very reasonably priced uh, wines. I try to make sure that we have a nice spread. You know, another thing that we talk about in our trainings too, is that like the the aspect and you're, you're, you're right in the, the, the supposition of, you know, the, the whole point of the tasting of wine is to see whether or not it's flawed, but most people don't know that, you know, um, there's a lot of, you know, mystery and allure that just the service of wine has to a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, that they may not understand. And that's honestly a very common uh, question that we get. I, I couldn't tell you how many times over the course of my career, I've been opening a bottle of wine and, you know, I set down the cork and I'll pour a taste and everything. And, and the person, even the person that ordered it, were like, so what am I supposed to do here now? Like they literally <laughs> asked me that. And, and, you know, I have to, you know, very, very, uh, very nicely explain. It's like, oh, you know, you just make sure that the wine sound and everything like that and blah, blah, blah. But there's a lot of people I'd say it just, again, because of that kind of mystique of wine that may not understand that the function of that is, is just to see if it's flawed at all, not necessarily whether or not you like it. But that said, if someone truly doesn't uh, like a particular wine that, that even they selected, I don't want to sacrifice their overall dining experience uh, purely because uh, I, I wanted to take a hard line on something like that. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, of course, definitely. And, I, and that's kind of what I assume the answer would be, but I wanted to ask just to be safe. Hey, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening so far. If you're liking it, please subscribe, tell a friend. If you're loving it, please give us a five-star review. What is the most expensive bottle of wine you've ever had? A uh, bottle of 2003 Chateau Margaux. Uh, that was uh, $500. And, and there's a story behind that too. It wasn't an intent uh, when I started off to uh, spend that much. I'll say that. 
Um, I was on a trip. I was in Colombia. I was in Cartagena and uh, I, I stopped at, I made reservations at uh, a restaurant within uh, the Sofitel, really swanky uh, hotel chain. You know, I, I came back for dinner. I was seated and everything. And, and the, the sommelier had, you know, it was very, very uh, classic, proper uh, service. He had the, the test of vin. Uh, will you ever see the, the little cup around the necklace kind of thing? It's very uh, traditional for a sommelier to have. I don't ever wear, I don't even own one, but I, they're kind of cool. And so I was talking to him through someone else, you know, as far as what I, cause he didn't speak uh, uh, any English. And at the time I didn't speak much Spanish, you know? So I was like, can you do like a tasting menu, blah, blah, blah with, with this. We did like the seven course meal. It was a beautiful restaurant. And uh, he's like, no, I can't do like a tasting, but I can do one bottle. And he comes out, he's like, let me grab something. He comes out and he has two, uh, uh, two bottles. And I recognize obviously the Chateau Margaux and, and it's a, a first growth uh, Bordeaux. Very, very nice. I knew it was going to be pricey, uh, but you know, I figured, hey, we're in, in South America. Maybe there's a, a benefit of the dollar to their peso or whatever. But anyway, so he's pouring the wine, this, this, the, the entire establishment was beautiful and, and seated right across from us was a 10 top that like, it seemed like everyone in the restaurant was just like waiting on hand and foot. And I asked the, uh, the server, I said, you know, who is that? And they're like, well, that's the uh, prince and princess of Belgium. Oh my God. So I'm like, okay. Uh, I, you know, I had no expectation of almost dining with royalty tonight. Right. But that's pretty cool. But then of course the, the bill came and I'm like, all right, well, it came with a price. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. So that's that's the uh, that's the most expensive bottle ever I ever bought. You know what I wonder about it with expensive wines is if it's like placebo effect. Like for me, if I spend like eighty to hundred, like that's a big huge splurge. I do it like once once or twice a year, and it tastes better. But I'm like, does it taste better because it's expensive? Like if I did a, if I were to do a blind taste test as a non expert taster, I wonder if I would choose the expensive wine. That's that's a good question because uh, you know there there's certain uh, wines at least you know, that from my experience, that there's a law of diminishing returns kind of, you know, it's, it's, you know, well, this one just keeps getting up and up and up and up and up. And, you know, is it really, you know, is, is the taste running parallel with that price increase kind of thing. And then there's other factors though, to, to, um, to consider like the rarity of a particular bottle of wine, you know, if there's something where, you know, this vintage is totally out and, you know, you'll never see it again kind of thing, or, it's at its peak. And once it's gone, it's gone kind of thing that that is one thing to consider, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's hard for me to, hard for me to answer that question. You know, I, I, I certainly believe though that, you know, you can find incredible bottles of wine at almost any price point. It, yeah. it just depends on, you know, the producer depends on the region, depends on the variety. And furthermore, you know, one of the things I, I like to talk to uh, my guests about and, and to our teams is it's, the, the quality of a bottle of wine is very much, in my opinion, determined upon the quality of the company that you're enjoying it with. You know, I, I'd much rather have, you know, a couple bottles of two buck Chuck with my friends, like, you know, having fun and, yeah. and just, you know, having a great time versus the, the best quote unquote best or the most expensive, you know, bottle by myself. Does that make sense? Like, oh I, yeah, of course. I, I'd, I'd rather. I, I very much find that the that the quality of any wine is determined upon you know my environment, typically. Dude, I agree okay. totally. And then this is another small thing that I think affects the flavor in a weird way. Is I know that twist off caps are fine in the modern wine world, but I feel like the cork is much more romantic and feels much more authentic. Sure. 
<laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, the, so the twist off, uh, it's, it's also known as a Stelvin enclosure. You know, they've done studies that it truly helps to maintain wine in a much more stable way uh, over the, the and, and prolong uh, its aging. But that said, yeah, there, there's something about getting out the wine key and cutting the foil and, yeah. and, and, to, and presenting the cork and everything like that. Because we, I mean, we don't, when it, when it is a Stelvin enclosure, we, we try to be very discreet about the opening of that because you know, even though it has zero indication of, of quality, there's that unfortunate kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, bad reputation, if you want to call it, of, of yeah. being of a lesser quality. So, but yeah, I prefer corks too, but. Isn't that know. so interesting? Like it's, a, it's kind of like technically an antiquated idea, but most people still love it. That's really interesting to me. Yeah, it's, well, it's cool. You know, it's, it's, uh, I think wine is one of the last kind of bastions of like connection, connecting us to, to the, uh, not to wax poetic or anything, but you know, it's connecting us to the earth and, and some more natural kind of uh, old school kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I want to get into the questions real quick here. The most popular question, we had about 50 people ask this, so I'm sorry I can't give you shout outs, but a lot of people asked you, the, what is the best affordable red and white wine? And I know that's subjective, so let's say like 15 to $25 range. Most affordable, um, I, I won't name any producers or anything like that, but I, I'll, I'll tell you regions to, to look at. Spain is an incredible incredible just wealth of not only uh, winemaking knowledge and history, uh, but I mean, the bang for your buck there is just profound. It really is. Okay. Um, you can get some spectacular whites, some spectacular reds, even spectacular sparklings like Cava. You know, you can really, <laughs> there's a lot of value there. And, and, you know, truth be told, I might be a little biased with that because Spanish reds are some of my favorite, uh, particularly from Rioja. And the same with whites. You know, I love Albarino and, uh, you know, I love uh, Viura as well as an excellent variety. I I'd say look to Spain and uh, Australia as well. Australia has some incredible wines to, I mean, like, I, you know, bang for your buck as well. I think a lot of people, uh, unfortunately, apply kind of like the, the, the yellowtail, uh, you know, uh, uh, side of wine to the entirety of Australia. But you you can find any kind of wine, any kind of style in Australia, and typically for an awesome price. Uh, certainly, there are some high-end wines, you know, that that they make in Australia that definitely, at least, you know, are out of my price range. Um, <laughs> you know, there's like more collectible kind of things, but but I'd say overall, on your average, you've got some great value in both of those countries. Awesome, thank you for that. And as far as regions go, let's let's talk local. Do you have a favorite state in the United States for wine? Uh, Washington. Washington, Washington, hands down. Okay, and, uh, cool. I mean, I, not to not to disparage, you know, Oregon or California, you know, because I certainly love love those, um, or even some of you know awesome wines in Arizona and uh, Texas. Um, but Washington is such an incredible place. It uh, both historically, geologically, uh, weather wise. I mean, you know, it's it's just incredible. I I I love so many different styles of wines that are made out there particularly reds, but, you know, also the whites. But if you are looking for, again, I, I'm a big fan of, uh, of getting my money's worth out of everything, you know? Nice, um, yeah, of course. But uh, yeah, if, you, if you're looking for something that, again, won't break the bank, Washington is is incredible. Okay, thank you so much for that. I love that answer. And I was, I was guessing you were going to say California, but Washington, I'm totally into it. The next question, this was kind of a unique one. Uh, Hareli Sipane asks, how many ounces is the perfect pour to maximize the nose and taste of your wine? Good question. Um, it depends on the glass, largely. For me, you know, I'm, I'm kind of 
pretty particular about about even just the weight and feel of my of the tasting glasses that I use. Uh-huh. Um, so I might not be the best judge to apply that to everyone's kind of perspective, uh, but I would say you know four-ish ounces is pretty good. Uh, that way, for your average wine glass, I, I would I would say uh, you get a good ability to swirl the glass so that you can you know get those aromas going, get it the the more uh, uh, increased oxygen exposure of the wine, let those flavors bloom in the glass, but then also not being in danger of swirling the wine out of your glass. <laughs> right. you know? Especially if you're just learning how to swirl. Uh, yeah. yeah, you don't want to swirl like a maniac. Take it easy with those swirls. Yeah. Eater Eater and Chef asks, what's the best way to shop for bottles based solely on labels? Wow, that's a hard one. Based solely on labels. I, I want to say go with the prettiest, but you also have to uh, take that kind of with the, the knowledge that the usually the more elaborate uh, and detailed and, and crazy looking label means that they poured a lot of money uh, into the marketing behind that wine. Uh, yeah, my and, thoughts exactly. <laughs> yeah, so it's, I, I don't know that there is a good way to, to go just off label, you know, just like a book kind of thing, but. <laughs> oh man, I was hoping you would say that. I was going to be shocked if you would have said like some in-depth like, explanation for that. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's no real trick to, to just going off the look of the wine. And then the last one here is from Mary F3 underscore. She asks, why do people hate boxed wine? And are there any boxed wines that you would recommend? Yeah, why do people hate boxed wine? I'd say uh, probably the historical application of that of that format as being kind of a quote unquote lesser quality or at least more mass produced. I would say and it comes from Spain, uh, Vina de Borgia. They make a Garnacha, if I'm not mistaken. But if you're looking for like something that you can get and just hang on to, and it keeps for a good long while. It's it's not a bad format, you know. To you know, for people that you know may not have the ability or desire to uh, to drink an entire bottle in one evening. Not to, I can't really relate to that, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's it's a good format to to preserve the wine and and you know kind of slowly go through something and for parties and stuff too. You know, it doesn't take up much space. You know, as far as the environment's concerned, it uses a lot. Uh, less material to to uh, to secure everything and keep it fresh and everything. So it's it's not a bad format. I think it's just going back to that you know the the whole cork thing that we were just talking about. It's not nearly as romantic, you know. True. Um, but certainly nothing wrong with it. Of course. Are you like a master taster with everything? Like for example, if I were to give you six seltzers, all the same flavor but different brands, do you think you could identify the brand of seltzer? Brand probably not because I don't drink enough uh, seltzer to have that kind of experiential knowledge to be able to identify the different ones. But I certainly can pick out the flavors, which is kind of which is kind of funny. You know, when you're uh, especially at this level, when you progress enough in your your evaluative tasting, it it, it becomes very cerebral. And well, it, it by nature is very cerebral, but it becomes also a, a, a mechanics that's built into you. So, you know, when I just want to relax and have a drink, I typically look for the most simple, not complex beverage that I can, that I can find. That way I'm not having to, th- I can just enjoy a drink and not have to constantly think, you know, if I just want to relax and not like, but yeah, certainly. So, and then that being said, this is kind of a funny segue from your original question, a little tangent anyway, but learning how to taste and, and taste in an evaluative way and in a very uh, structured way is is certainly something that can be taught. And I believe that really anyone, you know, to a certain degree 
uh, through experience can learn how to taste and identify certain things if presented to them blindly, right? You know, you think about bananas, for example. All of us, or, or a vast majority of us, have had bananas multiple times in our life. And, and when we encounter, you know, if, if someone blindfolded you and, and said, here, eat this, and or smell this and taste this, it's probably pretty likely that we could all identify bananas, right? Mm -hmm. um, we'll extrapolate that, That's and that's purely based upon experience. We've had them so many times that yeah, of course, you know, we're, the next time we encounter them, it's, we're not going to get that wrong. And then extrapolate that over the, you know, the billions of different flavor uh, compounds and, 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 and variations. You know, it's, it's something that if you experience them enough, if you practice it and you, you do it thoughtfully, you know, you can get good at identifying those flavors. But uh, as far as like, you know, deciding if something is a, a white claw or a truly or a, a, a core <laughs> seltzer or whatnot, uh -huh. I'm, I'm uh, I'm not there yet, but maybe this summer, if I spend some more time in the golf course, uh, maybe, I can, maybe I can get some experience now. That's awesome, man. Is it kind of a, a blessing and a curse? Because I imagine there's a lot of really high highs with having such a profound level of taste. But like you said, like you have to drink something simple just to relax. Like, can you not have a mediocre meal? Like, it, does your, if you cook, <laughs> like, are you like, oh my God, I'm a monster. I'm a horrible cook. Like, is it hard to please yourself? Oh. Oh, well, first off, uh, you know, we're all our biggest critics. Uh, so, you know, I, I cook a lot at home and I don't think I've ever liked anything that I've made at the same okay. time. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I love any kind of food. I can relax with what I, I didn't come from a background of, you know, you know, my parents were very much, you know, Miller Lite and cheeseburger. It's, it's, you know, it's not like I was born with a, a a, a wine glass in my hand or anything like that, or even exposed to the fine dining world at all. Um, it wasn't until um, after college that I, I got into it and really fell in love with food and wine and very much by accident. So yeah, I absolutely can enjoy, you know, just kicking back and having a hot dog and, and a beer and whatnot. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things. I, I find it fun. And I feel that, you know, when, when you turn your focus to like really diving into what you're experiencing through your taste and smell, uh, it, it's a whole new world for you. And in my opinion, you know, walking down the street or driving my car, you know, I'll smell something and I'll then I'll identify it. it. That's fun to me. I I just maybe I'm just naturally predisposed to that. I don't know, uh, or maybe I'm just a weirdo. But I, I enjoy uh, it's that's a fun game for me. I think the salt of the earth background you have probably helped your career because I imagine it's challenging to talk to guests in a non-condescending way. But since you didn't have a bougie background, I imagine that helps you a lot with service. Possibly, you know, I, I'd like to think that it does. Um, and that's also another thing that we talk about. I talk about all the time in our training and, uh, you know, our staff's probably sick of hearing it, but they need to hear it. Um, it's it's that you know there is absolutely an anxiety that comes with being the one to to choose wine for a table you know there's a, a lot of weird pressure there uh, maybe societally or even you know if it's a table of business people or even if it's like a you know a, a large table that's trying to you know just enjoy life for that evening or if it's a first date or something and then being handed one of our wine lists that could be you know 17 18 pages long and full of hundreds of selections, like where do you even start, you know, for somebody that doesn't know little to none about wine. So I try to, I try to take that element out as much as I possibly can and, and push our staff to also take that stance with wine. Um, because first off, no one can know everything about the subject. It, it's, it's an infinite uh, amount of knowledge. It's it literally, I mean, and it's changing all the time. 
uh, not just in terms of styles and, and producer uh, uh, techniques and whatnot, but also in terms of vintages and, you know, and weather and, and, and everything about it. And then considering the fact that wine, once it's, it is bottled, it evolves over time. It's a living thing. So you can never know everything about it. And, and to engage uh, any guest with uh, the mindset as if you do is totally missing the point in wine, in, in my opinion. You know, I, I, it's my job to, uh, and, and my mission, I feel, to get more people interested in wine and, and more people drinking wine. And if I'm taking a stance or even a, any kind of demeanor that diminishes that possibility for them, I, I view that as a failure in my book. So I, I try to be as, uh, as cool as possible, you know? Awesome. Yeah, definitely. And do you think there, are there any like wine rules that you think are true? Like I know people used to say like reds have to go with, you know, red meat, white with fish, et cetera. Like, do you think there are any wine rules that are absolutely true? Yeah, sort of. I mean, there's certainly like, you know, for example, you know, uh, fish always has to be served with a white wine or something like that. It very much, uh, that's kind of true, but not universally true. Um, I'd say if there is one thing that is a definite is that alcohol increases heat spice. So if you are drinking or if you have a, a, a dish that's really spicy, do not put something with a lot of alcohol next to it because it's only going to make it burn your mouth out. That's just <laughs> pure chemistry. You know, that's, that's the way it works. I actually love spice. So that's a good pro tip for me. I, I, I normally just do like beer, or maybe a whiskey or something. But if you have one, a craving for junk food, for example, do you think like, what is going to pair best with these nacho Doritos? Like, should I have a Pepsi? Should I have a Mountain Dew? Should I have a Pellegrino? Like, are you pairing things for yourself when you're trying to munch out? Yeah, kind of. I, I don't, when I have junk food, it, it, it typically isn't uh, in a, I'm usually not in a space where I can like reach for a bottle of wine. Usually I'm, I'm probably on our, on the road or something. You're heading to one of our restaurants, but I mean, I love junk food. I, no bones about it. I love Wendy's. I love Arby's. I, I don't go to McDonald's as, as often, but yeah, those are, those are my go, my go-tos. So when I think about those, um, yeah, I mean, or Skyline, for example, you know, when uh, Pepsi with Skyline, uh, I know a lot of people love Coke and whatnot, but mm -hmm. for me, or I, you know, plenty of my friends love Mountain Dew with Skyline. There's something about that. Uh, yeah, sometimes, but it's usually sodas, not necessarily like wine or anything like that. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, French fries, I'll say that French fries and champagne lights out. Really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Fri or fried chicken, fried chicken and champagne. Can't beat it. Nice. Yeah. Actually one of my Instagram friends, her name's Fruity Damare. She's a, she's an Instagram foodie here in Columbus. She actually talked about fried chicken and champagne. I'd never even heard of it, but I would do it. Oh, it's, it's lights out. It's awesome. Yeah. Would you suggest like a, a more dry champagne or what kind of champagne would you suggest? Yeah, you know, brute style is great, but the you know the 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 kind of yeastiness and and some of the uh, the the round uh, uh, mouthfeel of champagne I think goes perfectly with just some, I mean KFC original recipe, awesome. Nice. Yeah. I'm getting hungry now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, Keegan, I asked you everything I wanted to ask you, but if there's anything I didn't bring up or anything that you'd like to talk about. Uh, now's your time to go ahead and do that. Don't be afraid to engage the, the service professionals. Don't be afraid to, uh, you know, ask questions about wine or anything like that. And, and don't be afraid to try different things, you know, and if, if you do have any questions, uh, I'm on Instagram at Snap Keegan, S-N-A-P-K-E-E-G-A-N, uh, or you can check out uh, the Jeff Ruby Culinary Instagram at 
uh, Jeff Ruby Culinary as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Keegan. And I uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. And I really greatly appreciate you doing this podcast. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you very much. Of course. Have a good one, man. Thanks. You too. Hey, that was the episode. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Remember to tell a friend about the podcast, share some social media, and give us five-star review if you haven't already done that. Thanks.